And that when you have your eye firmly fixed on that purpose and asking yourself, what is my purpose? How am I seeking to be of service and of use in the world to others and to my family? How am I seeking to become my highest and best self? That is your protection. Hi, everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to invite you to come behind the scenes with me. I am writing a book on sustainable ambition, and the book is likely for many of you listening. It's for people who are ambitious, yet not at all costs, and are figuring out how to better align their life and work and continue to pursue their ambitions in a sustainable way. Does that sound like you? The book is early in development, and to start, over the summer and into the fall, I'll be hosting workshops to learn about and test some of the principles, practices, and tools of sustainable ambition and what I'm writing about in the book. The workshops are all free. You'll walk away with new insights and more clarity on how to make your ambitions more sustainable, how to better align your life and work, and how to pursue your ambitions in a more sustainable way. You'll also have a new way of thinking about ambitions and tools to come back to again and again to help you better align life and work and identify opportunities for sustainability. Plus, you'll be able to help me shape what is most valuable for you and others, which would be super impactful and such a gift. I'd love to have you join me on this journey and get a front row seat to what I'm developing. Again, the workshops will all be free, and in exchange, I would simply love your feedback with a short survey and feedback in the session. You can find more details and sign up to join me at sustainableambition.com slash behind the book. That's sustainableambition.com slash behind the book. I hope to see you in the coming months. Welcome back. I'm Kathy Onetto, and this is the Sustainable Ambition Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be consciously ambitious and craft fulfilling work from decade to decade without sacrificing your life or yourself. I am so excited to be joined today by Sabrina Moyle. Sabrina is a writer and co-founder with her sister, illustrator Eunice Moyle of Hello Lucky, a creative studio based in San Francisco known for its letterpress greeting cards and children's books. Sabrina has written over 20 humorous and inspirational books for children and adults, including the best-selling board books, My Mom is Magical and My Dad is Amazing, as well as an illustrated inspirational guide for adults, Escar Go For It, a snail's guide to finding your own trail and celebrating success. Sabrina holds a BA in art history from Swarthmore College and an MBA from Stanford's Graduate School of Business. She lives in the Bay Area in a full house with her husband, three sons, and dog. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, from Sabrina's career that led her to partnering with her sister in their business, to digging deeper into Sabrina's own journey of unlearning what it means to be successful, and the personal philosophies she's formed over the last 10 or more years and continues to shape to redefine success on her terms and allow her to show up as her best self. I also squeeze in a question about the state dinner she attended when the Obamas were in the White House. What was apparent to me in speaking to Sabrina is her desire to live, in my words, with joy, positivity, and intentionality. She says about her journey, quote, I basically made it my purpose to try to figure out how to live in a more sustainable, intentional, and happy way. Sabrina inspired me to continue on my own journey and path of defining success on my own terms and to continually seek wisdom in the world to guide me. This conversation serves as just that. I learned so much from Sabrina. 
So let me let you hear from her too. Here is Sabrina Moyle. Sabrina, welcome to the show. I'm just absolutely love Hello Lucky cards. And they're just so beautiful along with your book. So I'm really excited to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much, Kathy. I'm just delighted to be here because I love your podcast. I've just been listening to it um, over the last few weeks since you and I serendipitously met, and I'm just so excited about what you're doing. Thank you so much. Well, as you probably know, here on the podcast, I often start with guests' career journeys. So I'd love to start there with you if I could. You've been the CEO of Hello Lucky Now for 20 years, which I just think is amazing. I can't believe it's been that long. What brought you to joining your sister to start Hello Lucky? Eunice and I are sisters and grew up overseas traveling all over the world. So we've always been kind of creative partners in crime just by dint of the way that we were raised. Um, So I came to start the business because I always knew I wanted to do something in the realm of creativity, but was not an artist, didn't see myself as an artist myself. So in undergraduate, I started, I studied art history, and then I went and worked in the nonprofit arts world and then decided to go to business school because I realized a lot of artists didn't have business skills and neither did I. And so I needed to develop those in order to be able to really work in the creative space. Um, And then I worked in nonprofit consulting for a few years because I graduated during a recession and like creative jobs in the arts were just not, not really available at the time. So I did education nonprofit consulting, which was fantastic. But around that time, my sister's career had been sort of progressing in its own right. And she discovered letterpress printing and her love for letterpress. And she's always been one of the most inspiring and creative people I know. Um, And, you know, there was this opportunity for me to fulfill the experiment that I wanted to try to execute, you know, in my life and in going to business school. So I just jumped on at first on the side to help her start her business. And then as it started to take off, I realized how much I loved it. And so I just dove in headfirst. And and that was 20 years ago. And here we are today. Wow. And I love hearing that you are creative partners in crime. That sounds so fun. And you continue <laughs> to be creative partners in crime today. Totally. So then you started writing children books just a few years ago, I believe. And it seems like it's your calling. And the books have really resonated with people. I went and I checked them out on Amazon. Like you have hundreds of reviews on these books. Folks, that is not an easy thing to accomplish. So (laughs) it must be so fun to write your books. They do seem so joyful. What do you love about this work? Oh my gosh. Um, Well, I love bringing the joy and the wisdom that I've accumulated, hard-earned wisdom that I've accumulated through the years into a really succinct, funny, palatable, exciting, engaging format for children. And also my target audience is their parents. So (laughs) for me, the children's book is like this amazing medium to be able to get a really clear message out there. You know, people's attention spans are really small. So it's like to get it out there with words and pictures in a way that is at this point in people's lives, it's so meaningful when you're sitting there reading with your child. It's like a real sort of rite of passage for a lot of parents too. It's an opportunity to influence them. So that that gets me so excited. And I'm just honored and, and thrilled that they've been so well received. So you seem to have some philosophies that have guided how you approach your work and career. Can you share a little bit about those philosophies? Because I think they'd be really insightful for other people. I'd be happy to. And I want to share that, you know, my whole life is oriented around developing these philosophies. So it's like, you know, I think when we're in, when I was in college, I, you know, at, like everybody, I was fumbling around, but there was always this grain of like trying to figure out what does it mean to lead a good life? How can I show up in a way 
that is going to have a positive impact, you know, very idealistic. Um, and so that has really guided me. And so there are a number of philosophies. I would say at this point, the overarching philosophy around our work is how to bring joy, creativity, and connection into the world. You know, I see life as a creative journey, a creative process. We're always creating our own lives. And, and in being here, we are co-creating the world with other people. So how can, through my work and my products, can I inspire others to be creative and acknowledge their creativity, you know, and, and just see them, help them see that in themselves? How can I bring joy to people through the work that I do? And how can I try to foster connection? Because as human beings, we're social animals. And to the extent that which we're either slowing down to connect with ourselves or with nature or with other people who are meaningful in our lives, like that's kind of the meaning of life in many ways. And so how can I do that through my products and through my work? Um, and I would say that that's the overarching philosophy. And there's a number of things underneath that. But that came only late in life, like when I turned around 40, after I had kids and, and later in life. And earlier on in life, I would say I was following the usual path of like, you know, ambition. I just love you know, your whole podcast philosophy, I was really on that. I had to unlearn a lot of the lessons of what it means to be successful. Like early on, the first half of Hello Lucky was chasing like this startup mentality of like, how can we be, you know, get to scale and be as profitable as possible and blah, blah, blah. And it led to just a lot of misery, you know, and it was really only after I had my kids, you know, that I realized, wait, I'm here selling greeting cards and they're fun and punny and playful, but yet we're all miserable. And I was doing wedding, you know, we did a lot of weddings for a while. It was a huge part of our business. We're trying to be part of people's most joyful, important day or one of their major days. And yet the work itself was draining. And I, you know, I had this incredible overhead with the business. It was not profitable. It was not sustainable, you know? And so that's when the philosophy was born really was after having my kids and after doing some soul searching and actually taking about a six month hiatus or eight month hiatus when my kids were in preschool to just reevaluate. And that's when, you know, I started to really think much more intentionally about what, what, what am I trying to do here? What am I trying to accomplish? And who am I trying to serve? I'm not trying to please other people. I'm not trying to please my business school, you know, compatriots. And, you know, ironically enough, like when I go back to reunions now, I feel so gratified at the path that I've chosen, which was a completely um, just not a path that I thought would earn any respect. And it doesn't matter, you know? What helped you shift from that place of, I used to be driven by this definition of success to allowing yourself to step into this new definition. And I guess I ask that just because I'm hearing you like I did some soul searching. I, you know, really reflected on this. I chose to be more intentional. And yet it still can be challenging to kind of step into that and then also live it day to day. Yes. Is there a way that are there practices that you have in place that support you in fully embracing that on a regular basis? So there were a number that I um, picked up and I basically made it my purpose to try to figure out how to live in a more sustainable, intentional and happy way. So I would say the catalyst um, was when I turned 40, it was actually something serendipitous. I was in Mexico for my 40th birthday and I just had a bodywork sort of session, a Reiki session, which led to this sort of big opening, an aha moment. And it was not something I ever could have planned for. But I had at that point started to read about mindfulness. For example, John Kabat-Zinn, I'd read about self-compassion. I was really looking for ways to alleviate my own suffering and <laughs> try to show up in a better way as an employer, as a mom, as a partner, and as a daughter. You know, There was just a lot of aspects of my life that were just not really very happy at the time. So I started on this path. 
And then the serendipitous thing happened where I had a, a big aha moment, um, which is not something you can plan for, but it is something you can prime yourself for so that when those opportunities arise, you can take advantage of it because the wisdom that you're seeking is out there kind of waiting to find you. It's like the teacher finds the student when the student is ready, right? So I was ready. And then I just started pursuing different things in my spare time to try to learn more. So reading books on psychology, philosophy, spirituality, taking meditation classes, taking classes that might seem odd and off the beaten path. But when they came up for me, for example, I took a meditation classes at this place in San Francisco called Psychic Horizons, which I, I, I was really uncomfortable going there. But a friend of mine suggested going and it's just sort of a really wonderful, practical, you know, visualization based meditation tool that I use to this day. So things like that. And then I also started really thinking more intentionally about my cohort of people that were around me. So my husband has always been a really important partner in crafting a life. And at that point, because I had young children, I was in the position to be able to afford a nanny, you know, and also the teachers of my children's preschool. I started looking at those people as sort of almost like soulmates, like people who are here on this journey with me. And it was really when I was raising my kids, my nannies, oddly, were my source of wisdom and growth. And the conversations we had and what I learned from them was partly what kind of helped me on this path. And then it was honestly, it's just been constant reading. I've taken so many classes. I've read so many books, you know, ev everything that I can get my hands on over the last, you know, 10 years since I started on this path has been useful podcasts, everything. And so it's really been about making this a key part of my life and realizing that it drives success in every other area. You know, so the inner work, I see my life as three areas, right? One is my inner work on myself. How do I connect with something higher than myself and work on, on being as much in my accessing my higher self whenever I can, right? And that's also like my source of creativity, which fuels my work. The second area is my relationships. So that's both my relationship with my higher self, as well as my relationship with friends, my family, my children, my work colleagues. And how do I show up in the best way in those relationships? How do I constantly work on those relationships? And the third is the practical, pragmatic work of living. So that's my job. That's the work of being, you know, a householder, you know, an adult. So those are the three areas. And so how do I invest in each of those areas, realizing that it all starts with the inner work, you know, and it doesn't take long, but if I'm doing the work to kind of continue to grow within myself and become more free within myself, then that is naturally going to fuel better relationships and better work outcomes. And I'll be more productive and more creative, which is, is totally, I found that to be totally true. So powerful. And I appreciate these three areas. One of the things about inner work is that I, part of this is you're saying I do the inner work. And I, as I was listening to you, I'm like, oh, you've done the work. And it is a ongoing practice as well. And so what is the power of knowing oneself? Because I think that some people get a little nervous or uncomfortable with this idea of self-reflection. And it can also sometimes feel self-indulgent in a way. And yet, wow, the root of sustainability is knowing oneself so that you can make intentional choices. And that's a bit of what I hear you describing, Sabrina. But how? Do, what is the power of knowing oneself? Yeah, the power is that you are not as distracted by all of your reactivity and inner baggage, and therefore can be more focused and purposeful in everything you do. And when inevitably you get triggered by something that causes you to get stressed or off the rails or lose perspective, 
it's that much easier to then return to this um, detached sense of inner calm and peace, which then allows you to see things clearly, make better choices, and be more productive and have more energy. It helps you manage your energy better and be more energetic as well, because all the subconscious programming um, and thoughts and just baggage drags us down. So it's a, it reduces drag in your life, which allows you to be more sustainable in whatever it is that you're pursuing, right? And that starts, I would say for me, that started with unearthing just baggage from childhood. You know, we all grow up and part this is part of why I write children's books. We all end up traumatized. And this is like, you know, well known if you're in at all the psychology world, like we all end up getting traumatized one way or another large or small, by our upbringing, whether it's our family of origin, whether it's peers, whether it's teachers, whether it's coaches, that all just has an effect. We can't help it because as we come into the world as children, we are so innocent and impressionable and vulnerable. You know, So we all have those things and also the social patterning, right? The, the, the scripts and the stories about how we have to get into that whatever top tier college or we have to have that successful career, or we have to marry that per perfect person or have the perfect kids. Like all that stuff needs to be unlearned. And there's a lot that that goes into that alone. And that's an ongoing process, right? So I think it starts from there and, and releasing a lot of that old baggage. Then it goes into sort of mining the wisdom, which is all around us, um, <laughs> whether it be from friends or peers or elders or just philosophical or spiritual literature, or spiritual communities, or it's just everywhere you want to look in whatever flavor it works for you, scientific, neuroscience, et cetera. It's finding that whatever works for you to, to help you then um, optimize your own performance within and in your work or whatnot to be your best self. And, you know, so that's where I see it as kind of two parts. One is letting go of that past stuff. And the second mm -hmm. is more leaning into building and creating that, that inner self and outer self that, that is, was always there and ha has always had that potential. And it's not to say that you ever reach the destination. And it's not to say that life is ever perfect because there's always shit. Like I, the way I describe it to my kids is we all walk around with this windscreen and shit gets flung on it every day. Forgive my language and for swearing on your podcast, but like, you know, crap gets thrown at it. And every day you have to clear the crap off, you know, otherwise it gets so like muddy, you can't see anymore. So it's like continuously rubbing that off so that you can see clearly. That's the, the power of the inner work. I really appreciate how you're attaching that to or connecting it rather. Where Part of where you started too is like managing your energy better. If you don't clear off that crap, it continues to build up and build up and drag you down as you're saying. And I've had this insight recently too, where it's like, it's kind of a no dub, but it's like, if you're not thinking about it, you don't realize it. Like how much the consternation or your internal fretting, it drains your energy. Like if you really pause to think about like, how, am I using my energy where I actually really want to apply it? And what's really going to like bring you joy and actually fulfill you? I think many of us would find like, no, you know, a lot of my energy is being spent on this kind of fretting about things or what have you. And that's what I hear you saying is if you can come to terms with that, you have a process for that. It can really actually just reduce the friction and release a lot of energy to put towards what's going to really fulfill you in your life. Absolutely. And I, I think a key thing too, is it can reduce your attachment. You know, this is classic Buddhist teaching, but like the source of suffering is attachment. So whether it's our attachment to our status, to how much money we make, how, you know, our status at work, like let's say we're competing for a promotion with other people, or we have to make certain numbers at our job, or we, there's a goal, you know, 
all of these attachments and particularly attachment to how others view us. And this is where I like hate 360 performance reviews. You know, it's like all of this analysis, especially in the corporate world, can really fuel attachment and fear that underlies that, you know, of how people see us and whether or not we're going to be perceived as successful, which undermines our performance, you know? So, you know, and in the parenting world, parenting is just fraught with anxiety about, am I, am I messing my kids up? Are they going to do X, Y, Z by X, Y, Z time or whatever? And again, like that, those attachments completely work against us, right? And they completely work against our ability to really do our best work and then let it go and let it be in the world and allow it to actually flourish, you know, whether it be our kids or our work. So that is to me, like the, one of the biggest sources of value. And, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of people, once they're in particularly a corporate environment, they just are blinded to how attached they are. And they're constantly like trying to climb the rungs, et cetera. And it seems fulfilling because you're getting the promotions, you're getting the raises, you're getting compensated an insane amount. You know, I recently read this book called The Meritocracy Trap, which kind of outlines the fact that a lot of the high achieving people who work at these most prestigious jobs actually are suffering. They're working so hard and they don't have good quality of life. And that's just tragic, you know? And so that ability to sort of detach if it, and even if it means shifting careers, uh, but at least do your work without being so attached to all the dynamics that exist within, especially corporate institutions, I think is just so important. And we're a long way from people being, being able to do that because in many ways you are fighting the system and you have to try, it's, it's an upward battle. It's like an upstream battle all the time to try to show up in that way because the whole system feels like it's rigged against you a lot of the time, <laughs> but it's worth it, you know? It is. And I, you know, societally, I mean, we're wired partly for this, you know, to, to kind of look for those external signals. And I mean, even in the work that I do with sustainable ambition, I have to practice with this on a regular basis, having this personal agency around how I define success for myself versus looking at these societal structures or how we're all defining success out there. And I can fall prey to it as well. And I have to, it is a practice to play with it and to catch myself and bring myself back to my own self-definition of success and my own motivators and really root and stand there, you know? So it is, uh, it, it is challenging when we operate yeah. just out in the world. I totally agree. And I am fortunate enough to um, be married to someone who has achieved success on all of those sort of stereotypical metrics in terms of a career in finance, in terms of like the big house, the vacations, the second home. I mean, I live with someone who strived for that his whole life and has worked incredibly hard for that. And recently he's taken a sabbatical and we were both reflecting like, wow, a lot of that striving has led to suffering. Like we actually don't want all of this. And this is probably what you do find when you talk to people who are quote unquote ahead of you on that curve or whatever it is, they realize that there's no there there, you know? And we've both been like, oh my gosh, we got sucked in. How did we get sucked in? We, we just, you know, if we were to do it again, we would not have gone this path, you know, or we would have, we would have been much more conscious about it, right? So it's, I feel like that I'm, I, I, constantly try to mine that lesson. And I, I wish more people who have achieved what is perceived as success would come out and talk openly about how it's not all that and how you can be happy where you are. I mean, obviously, there's always stuff that you're going to be working towards and ways that you're going to be seeking to improve, whether it's materially, you know, or your work or yourself, but you can, like, there's no there there that people seem to be striving for, you know, so just stop striving for it. Just look within and then and and work within the sort of bounds of 
what is reasonable, you know? Given that, I'm curious how you think about success now. Like, how would you define success? And I wonder if you brought this into the book, Escar, go for it, you know, <laughs> or if like what the message of that book is, is there any relation there? Absolutely. So Escar, go for it. And I'm actually just going to grab it is an illustrated book um, about finding success, finding your own trail and, and celebrating success and the definition of success. So I've used in this book, I use the metaphor of the snail. Um, to talk about life, right? And to mine the wisdom of, of great teachers. And the reality is that a snail is self-sufficient. It carries its shell, which is this beautiful spiral, which is always growing, right? This infinite shape with it. It's both its protection um, as well as its burden, right? And it inches ahead and snails have lived on this earth longer than, you know, say T-Rexes, or they're, they're one of the longest living animals, the most durable, the most resilient, right? And they're, they're very humble. They're seen as pests by gardeners, you know, but yet they have this purpose, you know, when birds eat their, the shells of snails, that enables them to give their own eggs, right? A durable shell. So snails are just this incredible metaphor. And one of the things from the book that I love the most is the idea that your purpose is your protection. So your purpose in life, which for me, I see as just trying to kind of stay grounded and maintain perspective, and then choose, you know, some manageable, but yet a sort of aspirational, but attainable goals in my life, right? And being open to all the things that are outside of my control, and, and sort of using intuition to go along with those. I feel like that is the key. So, and that when you have your eye firmly fixed on that purpose, and asking yourself, what is my purpose? What am I seeking to how am I seeking to be of service and of use in the world to others and to my family? How am I seeking to become my highest and best self? Um, that is your protection. You know, that helps you get through the, the dirt and the, you know, the, the tough days, which we all have, you know, and the seasons where things are not going your way or the blow ups or whatever it is, you know, so that's kind of my, what I think the book is about. And it's just a, a, sh- a series of short essays and inspirational quotes all about these, these ideas and, and the specific practices as well um, that you can use inspired humorously by the snail. I appreciate how you're talking about purpose here. And I'm curious from your perspective when you think about purpose, because sometimes even in the definition that you shared, sometimes people can get a little overwhelmed with the idea of purpose or think that it has to be this really big thing. And I'm curious how you come at it, or even if you provide some examples in the book that make it perhaps feel accessible to people. Yes, yes. I might not be able to find the specific excerpt, but I basically say like your purpose can be anything. You know, it can be a job that earns, maybe you're the primary breadwinner. It's, it might be a job that really earns a living, a good living. It might be a job that just earns you pocket change. You know, um, I don't really pay myself and I have not um, for many years because I'm in the privileged position to not need to. And I would rather pay that money to my employees and to, you know, people who really need it. Right. So, I don't think of myself any less by the fact that my job does, is not, you know, sustaining my family. And I think re- the reality is there are so many unremunerated jobs out there that have equal or more value to the ones that are held up by society, like being a caregiver or being, you know, a preschool teacher or whatever it is, caring for the elderly, you know, whatever it is, community service, volunteerism, all of those things are of equal worth. So I say, you know, that could be something that earns you pocket change or no money could be your purpose. It could just be the way you show up. Um, your purpose could just be to show up as a person who is kind. 
that or being a good friend or working on being just a really excellent listener. You know, being in a right relationship could be your purpose. So um, there's a great uh, episode. I really love the Being Well podcast with Rick and Forrest Hansen. And one of the episodes, they talked about how um, being in healthy relationship with other people and with yourself is holding the balance of loving yourself and loving others. So your purpose might just be, how do I move through my day in whatever I need to get done? It might just be getting up in the morning and taking care of yourself. You might have a debilitating illness that does not allow you to even show up in, in many ways at all. You know, it might just be you and, and a couple people or your cat, you know, whatever it is, like you can show up with that balance or work towards showing up with that balance of self-love and love for others. And then how does that compassion, you know, it, it could it could impact your your world in the smallest of ways, but it's like the butterfly effect, right? Even those smallest little impacts that you have on one or two people do have an outsize effect. They do affect the overall. Um, so not to diminish any um, any type of calling or purpose. It's all equally valid. I really appreciate all of those examples. Thank you for sharing them because I think that it brings it down to a level where people can see themselves in these purposes and really, as you're describing, like can bring them into their day to day. It doesn't have to be um, world changing. And yet, if one shows up even demonstrating love for self and others, that is world changing, you know? So I think we just need to make it, allow ourselves to step into that accessibility and that way of being right. in the world. I agree. And I think that's the first step because once you start down that path, then actually you might be able to do something bigger, but you can't really, I, I my view is you can't really do something that much bigger in a way that's sustainable and that has has comes with integrity and positive energy, right? Ideally without at least starting there. Because there's there's plenty of people who go out there and seem to achieve really good things, but they leave a lot of suffering in their wake, you know? One of the things I talk about with sustainable ambition is also honoring life stages and planning and arcs. And it seemed like you have some frameworks that you've used to guide yourself in how you think about the arcs of your life. Can you share a little bit about that? I would love to. So um, one framework that has been really helpful to me is Richard Rohr's framework from the book Falling Upwards, which is that there are two halves of life. The first half is the material half. So it's about building the container that you need in order to be able to sustain yourself and your family materially, right? The second half is the spiritual half. So that's when you have this hopefully somewhat stable, steady container, you've got it worked out and you're able to then work on how to be of service. Um, how do you transcend just the material and be of service in other ways through, through love, through compassion, through whatever it is, through volunteerism. And so that's, that's been very helpful. And that's to me has proven true for me. I think it's the reason why we have midlife crises is because there's a natural arc to the human life that, that moves towards the transcendental later in life. Hopefully, if you're not too, you know, mired in the weeds to, to be able to pause and make use of that, that rite of passage. The other thing that I found helpful is the framework of the divine feminine. So this is a class that I took at a place called the Foundation for the Sacred Stream in Berkeley, it teaches Buddhist psychology, as well as a variety of applied shamanic practices. Um, and this is the idea that there are five stages of life for women in particular, there's birth, puberty, childbirth, menopause, and death. Um, and thinking about how at each of these stages, it's a call to embody our own power, to think about it intentionally through rites and rituals, right? Um, and so that's been helpful. So for, for me, for example, I just went through menopause, it's been about 
thinking about how do I now transition into being this more of an elder, you know, and what does that look like? What does that mean? So life does have these very natural stages that I think it's really helpful to think about proactively, you know, to think about death proactively. Um, don't be afraid to think about it because it's just a natural uh, step and phase of the cycle. You also talked about like having perspective around time that I thought was really powerful. And it's interesting how Jenny O'Dell, I believe it is, just came out with her book on time. This has been something I've explored on the podcast many times. I think it's really interesting to think about these arcs as well as how time can just function differently. And so you talked about, I believe like time is flow. It has a cyclicality and seasonality to it. You also talk about how like time belongs to all of us, which I think is an interesting philosophy. Would you mind sharing a little bit more just how you think about time? Well, it is. I mean, obviously, people will know from their own experience that time is very elastic, right? There are moments where time stretches out forever. And there are moments where it seems to fly by. And, you know, when you're in a state of flow, in particular, is I think when things seem to slow down, I think about it as uh, instead of trying to manage time, allowing time to flow as it's intended to flow, and just managing ourselves and our relationship to it. It does not, it is not a commodity that we can manage. It is something that we are in the flow of that we need to flow with, right? And it does have its seasonalities. There, there is, there are times when things speed up and slow down for us in our own life experiences. And then I think it's really important in how we think about how we do our work with colleagues in particular, right? So I, even though I do things like use a calendar and I time block and everything, and I schedule meetings, I, I really try to be mindful of the fact that my employees have to go pick up their kids, they have to go to doctor's appointments. And that's okay, because their time doesn't belong to me. Just like my time, although I can manage it, ultimately, time is this flow that we're all in, right. So for me, it allows me to loosen my um, kind of controlling tendencies around when things are around scheduling around when things aren't seeming to go the way that I want them to go whatever. And to be more generous, I feel like with my employees, because when I am this way with them, they actually, they really appreciate it. And we get just as much done, I feel, uh, you know, and sometimes if we don't get as much done, that's okay, too, because I feel like the work is getting done in a way that is still totally meeting expectations and totally fine, you know. So that's, that's an example, I'd say that's, that's a little bit more about how I think about it. With regard to your employees, is it just a mindset that you bring to how you operate with them? Or have there been actual, I hate to use the word policies, but like, or, or, or that's not the right word, but it's, it's almost like, are there practices that you put in place at work that help facilitate this honoring of, I don't own your time. It's your time. It belongs to you. And I'm going to honor when you need to flow and see how we can make that work within the organization. So what I've done is I've, I do, I have found it helpful to have an unlimited PTO policy, which is something I, I initially learned about through Michael Hyatt, whose work I really recommend, um, Free to Focus and some of his other books. Living Forward is another good book that he's written. Um, so that I think the philosophy there is as long as the work is getting done, you can have, you can take time off, you know, and I've given employees, you know, a, a summer off to go on a big road trip or time off for their weddings or whatever it is, right? So that I think is a really helpful frame. It just makes employees feel seen and appreciated. And that, you know, as long as they're getting their work done, they can take the time that they need. And so that flows through. And I couple that, however, with regular check-ins, right? So I, one of the things I learned 
is that it's you can't just be so permissive that people just like take off and don't get their work done, right? Or there's a risk that that that's human nature. There's a risk that that's going to happen. Life is full of distractions and and busyness and and work outside of the work sphere that needs to get done. And we've all experienced that working from home, right? There's an endless amount of things that you need to get done around the house from laundry to paying bills to taking your kids to school, whatever. So it can encroach and that's a real risk. So the way that I approach that is just to have regular check-ins with my one-on-one check-ins with my employees, you know, where I check in on what are your goals and how are things going and what are your grows and glows? You know, here's what's going well, here's where I'm looking for a little bit more effort or here's where I have questions you know, and trying to do those every two weeks, particularly with onboarding new employees. I have older employees where I just don't feel like that's as necessary anymore because there's just such a natural cadence and rhythm and I trust that things get done and, and that's all good. So that, that's an example. And I think also for me, it's it's a constant just focusing on what are, the, what are the top priorities, you know, not creating busy work and getting attached to busy work that I feel like I should be, you know, doing or making my employees do in order to be running a business effectively type of thing. That's also a helpful frame for me in terms of managing the business and managing time in a way that feels humane and generative and ultimately more productive. Before we start to wrap up, I want to transition and just ask you about this, what I'm calling like a wow moment. And I'm curious if it was one for you, Sabrina, but you served as a small business advocate during the Obama administration. And that led to you being invited to a state dinner honoring the Japanese prime minister. And so you went to a state dinner with the Obamas. I'm curious, what was that experience like? It was definitely a wow moment. It was so surreal. Um, And the way that I ended up there was so serendipitous. It was really interesting. That's a longer story. But I would say the wow moment of being there was just realizing that everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. You know, I was standing in line. I was, you know, I was at the the head table sitting opposite, you know, Michelle Obama, you know, and again, it's like this really long story to to tell how that actually happened. It was, again, very serendipitous that it happened. The key thing I remember from sitting in that hall was being like, oh, wow, everybody here is just human. You know, everybody struggles with their health. Everybody struggles with their families. Everybody's trying to do their best at work. Everybody has back pain or, you know, is struggling with their weight or trying to fit in exercise. You know, Michelle Obama was talking about her kids who were teenagers at the time and phones and like digital, you know, media and trying to manage their media. Everybody's struggling with the same things, even if they have achieved something that seems um, to be remarkable and may, may well be remarkable. You know, we all we all share this you know, the sort of similar quotidian struggles. (laughs) That does sound like such an amazing moment. And what a great insight to leave with to just recognize that we're, we're all the same, really, regardless of what we've achieved or accomplished or perhaps strived for. You know, we're all operating in our part of this ecosystem and one community that can impact each other and leave some joy in the world and some positivity by stepping into our own purpose, as you talked about. You've shared so much wisdom with us, Sabrina. This has been amazing. I do just want to ask you a final question, which is, you know, what's a final takeaway or some guidance you might leave our listeners with to help them on their path of sustainable ambition? I think for me right now, it's to find one or two people who are on a similar place in their path as you. And I don't mean career path, I mean spiritual growth. Um, and ideally are seeing it through that lens and seek those people out. And once you find them, what I do is I have 
I see them regularly. There's two people in my life, one who I have a regularly scheduled every two week, 30 minute peer coaching check-in. We just check in with each other. We hold space for each other. We listen to each other. And we both are very similarly minded in terms of where we are in our in our spiritual journey, right? We do very different things, but we have a similar take on what we're trying to learn and how we're trying to grow. So we share that purpose. So that's one is having a, I'll call it a purpose partner. Okay. And then the other, you know, related to that, I have other purpose partners who, you know, they are now my, you know, who I see to be my best friends. And I just try to schedule time with them. It, it, it might be one once every six months, but to, to spend time with them, because I think it, you can't do this alone. You have to have teachers and guides and it might come from books or podcasts, um, but having one or two people who are your sort of soulmates or travelers in this is really, really helpful. So that would be my piece of advice. So it goes back to that cohort and those relationships that you called out and how important those are. So powerful. I have learned so much from this conversation, Sabrina. Thank you for sharing your story. Like I said, sharing your wisdom and all the work you've done to kind of get yourself to this spot in your life and how you're living according to the philosophies that it sounds like you continue to shape. So thank you for being here to be in conversation with me. Well, thank you. And I just appreciate so much that you're opening up space for these types of conversations and the work that you're doing, because I just think it's, it's just so important. I hope and wish the best for all of your listeners that they may find their own uh, paths and purpose and just find, find sort of generative insights along their path along the way, no matter where they come from. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sabrina as much as I did. One of the things I talk about with sustainable ambition is the idea of becoming more consciously ambitious. See, I don't think all striving is bad. Think about what we have in the world because of people's striving. Beautiful art, expressions of talent, scientific discoveries, fighting for equal rights, even something like the iPhone. I know that might sound silly, but a lot of us like our iPhones or just our phones. So again, being ambitious and striving is not all bad, but it can go sour. It can turn to the dark side. So how can we strive and be ambitious more consciously? And you heard Sabrina talk about that too. She said, you know, we got sucked in and we wish we would have been more conscious about what we are striving for. So Sabrina got to work. As I shared at the start of the episode, she said she made it her purpose to try to figure out how to live in a more sustainable, intentional, and happy way. I loved how she spoke of the three areas of her life that she focuses on inner work, relationships, and the pragmatic work of living. And I appreciated so many of her perspectives around success, inner work, purpose, and time, and how community, the cohort that surrounds us, is so important. And I just love the idea of having a purpose partner, which she shared at the end. I think that's just brilliant. So as you reflect on today's conversation with Sabrina, what spoke to you? What's one insight that caught your attention that you will take action on within the next 24 hours to make the learning real for you? Maybe it's picking up one of the books Sabrina mentioned. Maybe it's thinking about your purpose or taking a step to identify a purpose partner. There's so many gems to choose from. And with that, we're at the close of another episode. Thank you for being here with me to learn from Sabrina Moyle. I'll be back in your feed in two weeks with a new story of sustainable ambition. If you liked today's episode, I'd appreciate it if you'd rate and review the podcast where you listen. 
And remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can find show notes for today's episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. See you soon. Thank you.